This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Today's episode is brought to you by cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. This is Finsider Radio, part of the Finsider.com and the SB Nation Network. And now, your host, Matthew Kanata, joined by co-hosts Josh Houts and Aaron Sutton. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Finsider Radio. This is Matthew Kanata. I'm joined by Aaron Sutton and Joshua Houts. And stop me if you've heard this before, but where do the Miami Dolphins go from here coming off a devastating loss to the Indianapolis Colts, losing 24-27 to in the waning minutes and the waning seconds of the game. Miami Dolphins giving up a 10-point lead, 13 points for the Colts in the fourth quarter after giving up zero in the third and only seven in each of the first two quarters. Collapse by the Dolphins, and we're going to talk more about this offensive series that everyone is ranting and raving about. But it seems as if... Dolphins Nation has hit a boiling point with head coach Adam Gase. And it seems as if the locker room is showing some cracks as well. Frank Gore very upset after yesterday's game against the Colts. Basically saying you cannot do what you did and give the ball to Andrew Luck to win the game. And that the coaches should have known better. He didn't call out the coaches directly, but indirectly reading between the lines. That's what it came out to be. Other guys, I'm sure, are very upset with the Adam Gase's passive-aggressive nature at the end of the game with running plays and everything else backed up in his own end zone. Sure, I I get what you're maybe trying to do, but listen, you put the ball in your quarterback's hands who you're paying tons of money to. This is your guy. Put the ball in his hands. But then again, maybe this showed us that Ryan Tannehill really isn't Adam Gase's guy anymore. And and those two offensive series really told us a lot about Adam Gase and what he thinks of the Dolphins' offense and what he thinks of Ryan Tannehill. Before we get into all of that, I'm going to jump on my soapbox here. And I'm going to talk about how the Dolphins got into this mess that they're in today. And this is going to lead us into our first segment where Sutton, Houts, and I talk about the Dolphins' inability to properly rebuild. Flashback to 1996 when Jimmy Johnson became the head coach of the Miami Dolphins coming from the Dallas Cowboys after winning two Super Bowls there. Miami Dolphins and all the fans and everyone else thinks the Dolphins got one of the best coaches in the game. They want, uh, Jimmy Johnson, sorry, getting ahead of myself here. Jimmy Johnson finished with a 36-28 record, five playoff appearances, Five games in the playoffs, two and three record in the playoffs. 563 winning percentage. Didn't do what the Dolphins thought he would do. He handpicked Dave Wanstead to run the team after him. Dave Wanstead was paired with Rick Spielman, the general manager. They basically kept Jimmy's players and they ran off of whatever they could 
Dave Wanstead wins the AFC East in his first year as head coach. Goes downhill from there, runs Ricky Williams into the ground before that. Before his last season, a Dolphins switch up roles and gives Wanstead more personnel control. And then Eric Spielman leaves shortly after once Wanstead gets fired. Because Wayne Huizenga, blessed memory, former owner of the Dolphins, says that we're going to clean house and we're going to start all over. And we're going to get the most coveted coach in all of football, and that's Nick Saban. And he does. And he pairs Nick Saban up with Randy Muller. And Nick Saban keeps, you know, some of the roster intact. They work together, but Saban pretty much has full control over the roster. And he brings in some guys, uh, makes some questionable draft choices. Jason Allen, the safety from Tennessee. Ronnie Brown at number two, passing up on the likes of Aaron Rodgers. Yes, I know lots of other teams passed up on Aaron Rodgers as well. Nick Saban then uh, making the fateful decision that sealed his fate in the NFL to pick Dante Culpepper over Drew Brees. And the guy will never live that down for as long as he lives. He trots back to college football and goes to Alabama. So after Nick Saban leaves to go back to Alabama, they keep Randy Muller in place. They give him more responsibility, now getting control over the roster, and he has a say in who the next head coach is going to be. And he picks Cam Cameron. And because Randy Muller helped build the roster with Nick Saban, a lot of those players remain with the Dolphins and Cam Cameron. Cam Cameron lasts one season. Then Wayne Huizenga says, okay, I'm embarrassed again. We're going to get one of the biggest names in all of football, and that's Bill Parcells. And we're going to bring him in. We're going to clean house. And they did. They did. That was the last true rebuild of the Dolphins. They basically flipped the entire roster. Bill Parcells brings in Jeff Ireland to be the general manager. They bring in Tony Sperano to run the team. Again, a blessed memory. Tony Sperano wins the AFC East his first year as head coach. And then from there, downhill. Steven Ross is sold to the team by Wayne Huizenga. Steven Ross takes over and fires Tony Sperano after his first year as owner. However, he keeps Jeff Ireland. And because Jeff Ireland built the roster with Tony Sperano and Bill Parcells, when they hire Joe Philbin, a lot of those players stay. Now, side note, Stephen Ross wanted Joe Philbin. Jeff Ireland wanted Mike McCoy. Neither were proven to be good head coaches, but who knows what would have happened if Mike McCoy came to the Dolphins. So, he kept the general manager in place, but got a new head coach. Then, he fires Jeff Ireland, but keeps Joe Philbin in place for another year. While bringing in Mike Tannenbaum as well. And now it's just a complete mess. So, Mike Tannenbaum is running the team with Dennis Hickey. Joe Philbin's going into basically a lame duck because no one knows what his future really holds in Miami. And... It's just a complete mess from there. Joe Philbin gets fired. Dennis Hickey gets fired after a year under Mike Tannenbaum. And then they bring in Adam Gase. Mike Tannenbaum stays, though. And because Mike Tannenbaum helped build the roster previously as a consultant and then in an official capacity, some of these players still remain. The Dolphins have never had a true rebuild with the exception of when Bill Parcells came. Dating way back all the way to 1996. Although Jimmy Johnson did leave his uh, fingerprints on this team. I I shouldn't say that. Jimmy Johnson basically rebuilt this team and set it up for years to come under Dave Wanstead, who kind of wasted away some prime years of the likes of Zach Thomas and Jason Taylor. But since then, you had Bill Parcells who did it, and then nothing really since then. But we were talking before the show, Son and House. I'm going to bring you in now. I'm going to get off my soapbox. But we're going to talk about the Dolphins have not had a full rebuild since the days of Bill Parcells. Sutton Houts, and we're going to start with you, Sutton. When we go into this, and we're already talking about the offseason already, and yes, there's still a chance the Dolphins can make the playoffs, and we're going to touch on that in a little bit too. But the full rebuild, we have to do it. No? Go ahead, Sutton. In my opinion, the answer is yes, and here's why I think that. From some of the research that I have seen and to how front offices work and the successful ones, what you find is that when you have people at 
different parts of their career. So in other words, you might have, and like the Dolphins have had, you have new blood coming in with pre-existing people on the hot seat. Okay. So thinking Dennis Hickey coming in to a already hot seat position. I mean, he was basically a, a, a fall boy, so to speak. So you have these different pockets of coaches and front office people in these positions where they're basically set up to fail from the very get go. There's no common, you know, I, you know, no common thread of how to build a team. I, I guess vision is probably the best word to use. There's no common vision and how to do things because you have different people weighing outcomes differently. Some people who are on the hot seat, if they're involved in the decision making, are going to be looking for something more for short term outcomes, whereas someone who has a little bit more comfort and more job security would be looking at it from a different approach and looking at it more from a long term perspective. So you have those differences and and priority. And I think that creates that creates some red tape in how decisions are made and it prevents some of the unifying vision that you would like to come from an organization and how they approach and building the team. So I think a full rebuild is the smart way to go in my opinion. So that way everybody that comes in is on a clean slate. You can come, you bring the team president in who comes in and brings in their front office people who then in turn bring in the coaching staff that they want. And then they're going to have an agreed upon division of labor who's responsible for what and who is in charge of the draft room and who's in charge of the 53 man roster and things like that. They would have to hash those things out but at least everyone on the same slate is going to prevent some of those circumstances where you have grown-ass men in a cutthroat business making choices that are self-interested as opposed to what's best for the organization. Yeah, it's tough for me to sit here and say how I think things are going to turn out because, I mean, we watched Joe Philbin get his a fourth season I mean he went 24 and 28 and he was fired after one and three start in 2015 so Stephen Ross I mean he gave him another opportunity and we all heard when Adam Gase was hired this was his young Don Shuley you know this was the guy who we believed in who he thinks could take this team to the next level and it just hasn't happened yet and you don't know who's to blame I agree with both of you I think the biggest uh, fault that the Dolphins had over the last few years since Bill Parcells is they just never had a clean slate I mean Jeff Ireland, Joe Philbin, I mean, then Dennis Hickey came in and took over with Joe Philbin, and then Mike Tannenbaum came in and, you know, transitioned into Adam Gase, and I mean, you just never had a complete rebuild, and you see teams in the NFL each and every year, they, they go that route, and right now, I mean, those are the teams that are having success, I mean, the Cleveland Browns weren't anything, and they came in, and surely they kept Hugh Jackson around, but I mean, what John Dorsey's doing there, the way they're building things, I mean, their future's promising. For me, it would be hard to sit here and expect Stephen Ross to go that route. I mean, we as fans, we think that's in our best interest, and I think ultimately that's going to be the, the route we go. But I don't think Stephen Ross will make a decision this year. I think he'll give Adam Gase a fourth year. And the toughest thing for me is when you look at what this front office has done lately. I mean, you look at some of the drafts, and aside from that Charles Harris pick, I mean, you can sit here and nitpick. But what Chris Greer and sure Mike Tannenbaum, if he had a say in it, Adam Gase, I'm sure he had some say in it. This has been some of the better drafts that we've had in recent memory. So, I mean, it's hard to sit here and say, you know, from that perspective that this needs to be blown up and start over fresh. But, I mean, it's time and time again with Adam Gase. It's his play calling. It's his inability to trust those players who he goes out there and bangs the table for. These are my guys. I believe in these guys. And then with the game on the line, he does the complete opposite. So, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Adam Gase get another year. But I do think you're just completely uh, prolonging the inevitable. And I think eventually... Uh, we're going to see him out. We're going to see a complete rebuild. And, I mean, same old Dolphins, right, guys? Wash or rinse, wash, repeat. That's how it goes, right? Wash, rinse, repeat, repeat, wash, rinse, whatever. And this is Adam Gaze's team. No, no matter which way you cut it, no matter which way you slice it, no matter which way you dice it. Here's some inside information for you guys. Adam Gaze comes here, one of the hottest coaches in the land. Plays the good guy year one, Mike Tannenbaum, Chris Greer. Halfway through the season, starts pushing for more control, more personnel decisions. Obviously, you saw the draft the first year. It was, Adam Gase's hands were all over it, yes. 
He's telling the scouting department what he wants. They're doing the work for him. By the end of year one, he is getting more and more power in the front office to the point where now he is controlling basically all the personnel decisions that happen. Mike Tannenbaum is just managing the cap now, running the football operations. He has very little say now in, uh, I shouldn't say very little say, he still has say in what happens with player acquisition and so forth, but not nearly as much as he had before. I don't know the relationship between Chris Greer and Adam Gase right now. I think they're on good terms, but I can't say for sure, but I'm pretty sure they're on good terms. Uh, I think they work well together and you know they're, they're calling the shots. And this is Adam Gase's team. And Albert Wilson, Jakeem Grant, Kenny Stills, Ryan Tannehill's whole offensive line. This is his. So if he's going to rebuild this team, he's essentially saying that he messed up on a lot. And there, and there's a whole other conversation to to that. So, how it's you said you don't think that Stephen Ross will fire Adam Gase? I, I I think I'm halfway with you on that one because as of last week, as of a week and a half ago, as of two weeks ago, Adam Gase was absolutely safe, no matter what happened. I shouldn't say no matter what happened, but he was pretty safe. You get the Colts game, you get the craziness at the end of the game. You, you, it's just a bad collapse and cracks in the locker room now. Don't count out a firing just yet. If Adam Gase's Miami Dolphins team collapses in the month of December, you can bet your money, not that Adam Gase will get fired, but that it will seriously be considered in Dolphins management. Now, even if they don't make the playoffs, which they likely won't, there's probably going to be some kind of changes, defensive coordinator changes perhaps, perhaps Mike Tannenbaum, perhaps some front office changes. I'm not exactly sure. But to say that Adam Gase is completely safe right now is false. Um, He needs to prove himself this last month of the season. He needs to finish strong, and he's fighting for his job, basically. But as Sutton said at the top of the show, Is it just the inevitable waiting to happen? Steven Ross gives Tony Sperano an extra year, fires him midseason. Steven Ross gives Joel Philbin an extra year, fires him midseason. And and I just have a funny feeling that if Steven Ross keeps Adam Gase, there will be a firing in the middle of the 2019 season. And I hate to say it, but I, I think that's where we're at now because Adam Gase Would need to rebuild this team a ton. Get a quarterback. Fix your offensive line again. Figure out your skill positions on the offensive side of the ball. I think you can get a good defensive coordinator come in here and shore up that defense. I think there's some good pieces on that. But the whole offense almost needs to be retooled again. And so whether you're going to trust Adam Gase to do that or not, after you see what he did to this offense, I'm not sure. So before we keep going here, because we're going to talk a little bit. I'm not really going to rehash the Colts game. I do want to talk about those last two drives because, House, I know you have some good information on that. But before we really start talking about the future, 538.com, Nate Silver says the Dolphins have a 4% chance to make the playoffs. How Sutton, do you think the Dolphins have any chance, realistic chance to make the playoffs this season? No, I can't even guarantee that we'll win both of the Buffalo games. And I would think that we need to win every game but one so if we can admit that we could lose one of those buffalo games then are we going to beat the vikings and the patriots and jacksonville and laugh at that all you want but jacksonville still has a tough defense and could be a really tough matchup for us so there's no reason to believe that we're going to get hot right now after the game that we just saw despite the fact that we opened up the game with a touchdown, which we haven't done all year, so I was super pumped about that, but just couldn't materialize that into a victory. So I don't think there's any reason to believe we can make the playoffs. Yeah, and let's be honest. What the Dolphins did on Sunday was pretty impressive. I don't think any of us thought they'd hang with the Colts the way they did. But I don't know about you guys, but even if they beat the Colts, I didn't foresee them making the playoffs. I really didn't think it was likely. I mean, sure, that would have been a step in the right direction, but we said earlier in the year that Cincinnati game was playoff implications. It was going to come back at the end of the season to haunt us. This Indy game is definitely going to come back to haunt us. I didn't think they were going to make the playoffs before the Indy game, win or lose. 
And I definitely don't think they're going to make the playoffs with their, you know, the way they've looked on Sunday, the way they fell apart late, Adam Gase's play calling. Um, sure, they have chance. We can all pray. Maybe that's our Christmas wish. But at this point, what? They make the playoffs and they get bounced right away like they did a few years back. I mean, is it even worth it? I mean, you look at their remaining schedule and you got the Bills at home. They should win that game. They have to play the Patriots in Miami. Patriots always have a tough time in Miami, but who knows? Uh, then they got the Bills. Then they have the Jaguars. They have the Vikings. I, I don't see them beating the Vikings. I think they're going to have a real hell of a matchup up in Buffalo. They should take care of the Jaguars. They're a hot mess. Cody Kessler starting and so forth. They're They're a mess. But... They have to win out, and we mentioned this on our last week's podcast show. They have to win out now. They have to hope the Colts lose, too. The Colts don't have an easy schedule. They play the Cowboys. They play the Titans, who are, are losing on Monday Night Football, but they still play tough. They, they, they don't have a very easy schedule. The Bengals look to be done with Andy Dalton out for this season, and this even just proves how much of that game meant on Sunday if the Dolphins had won that game. They'd be right in the thick of things, but they're not. They need to win out, and I don't think that's going to happen either. So, we got two more segments to talk about tonight. One is the final offensive drives against the Colts. And then two, you know, where do the Dolphins basically go from here in terms of what they should do after the season, right? We kind of talked about what we think they're going to do, how they should rebuild, what they should do, but really where do they go from here? How would we do it? So how it's, I'm going to let you step in here about the final offensive drives against the Colts before we segue into another segment. So for you watching that, I mean, for me, I'm just staring at the TV like, what is going on here? What are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing completely backwards what you're doing? So just give us your thought process. Yeah, I mean, you're sitting there and watching the game. The Dolphins are up, I believe it was 24 to 17. Uh, you know, they got the ball. Things were looking pretty nice. And they took 43 seconds off the clock. With eight minutes and 26 seconds left in the fourth quarter, the Dolphins were up 24 to 17. And they took 43 seconds off the clock. They came out and threw the football twice. And then they ran on a third and long for a negative five yard gain. So, I mean, the Dolphins picked up negative five yards on three plays, took 43 seconds off the clock up seven points in one of the most crucial games that they played in recent memory. So, I mean, if you can't sit there and point the finger at Adam Gase for that play calling, I mean, maybe saw what Sean McVay did on Monday night. You know, he went out there and he's like, all right, they're expecting me to run, so let's throw the football. And sure, maybe once, that's okay. But then at some point, you just got to realize, no matter what happens here, we just need to run some of the clock. And to take 43 seconds off the clock with eight minutes and 26 seconds to go in the game, I mean, that's inexcusable. And then again, they got the ball back. I believe the game was tied up at that point, and it was they had four minutes, 25 seconds left on the clock. They took one minute and 47 seconds off the freaking play clock. I mean, another three plays, one was a pass, the next play was a run, and then on third and, what was it, nine, third and ten, game on the line, and this is what everyone's so frustrated about because Adam Gay sits here and says, you know, I have full faith in Ryan Tannehill. I believe he's the guy. Third and long. Game on the line. You're tied game. You're going to go down there and, you know, hopefully make a field goal, hopefully end up winning this game, doing whatever it takes. They ran a draw with Kenyon Drake all game long on third and long. It was normally a draw to Drake or, uh, you know, I think there was one time it was a pass out in the flats. I mean, it's it's stuff like that that makes you wonder where we go from here and whether or not Adam Gase will ever live up to the hype that he built because you can sit here and blame the injuries. You can sit here and blame the quarterback. I mean – yeah, there are Tannehill fans out there, but you can't – there are people out there that despise him, and, you know, no matter what he does, he's just not good enough. But this wasn't on Ryan Tannehill. This was all on Adam Gase, and with the game on the line, the season on the line, late in the game, he got negative five yards on one drive and then four yards on a draw with the game on the line on third and long. I mean, it's inexcusable. I don't know what your guys' thoughts were watching that, but, I mean, it's, it's so Miami Dolphins. They were up this game. I, I don't know about you, but I just sat there and – you know, I was kind of numb because I knew that this was the game that the Dolphins continued to lose. We saw it in Cincinnati. We see it year in and year out. It's just frustrating. I think it's natural to think that it was third and long just because of how backed up we were. And there is the Kenny Stills penalty on second down there. 
but it was third and 10 guys. It's not like we're in a hail Mary situation or anything. We have to, we have to complete some super crazy, ridiculous pass. We're talking about a 10 yard pass. Okay. Even if they go back into a quarters offense or a quarter defense, sorry. And we just have a tight end come chip and help out some of the edge pass rush so we can slide our offense and kind of pinch it in to, to, help navigate some of the interior line issues that we were having, we would have had time to complete a pass there. So let's not act like what we were asking for was something completely out of the ordinary. Now, what, what it is for me and like, just to, just to preface what I'm about to say about this last drive was that we had plus two in the turnover margin and 84% of the time from the research that I've seen, and at least the data cohort that I've seen, 84% of the time those teams win that game. And there's a reason, because you have more possessions. So I want to preface all this with saying that we squandered many opportunities, and it wasn't just this last drive that dictated the game, because it wasn't. Okay, There were numerous chances for us to kind of cross this barrier, so to speak, and the game flow and be able to get ahead kind of extra possessions. So it ends up being about this gaze play calling, but there really were some opportunities before that. But CK Parrott had one of these, um, one of his great threads on Twitter and as level-headed as he is, he was looking at this last kind of series of plays. And what he found out was, you know, Gase, weighed chances of a successful play, which he estimated at 25%. And I'll take his research at face value. And it's versus 8% chance of a catastrophic play. In other words, the strip sack and the fumble, or, or sorry, a strip sack or an interception. And understandably, Gase would have that in the back of his mind. Kanata, we were right there in the stands in Cincinnati when we saw those very things happen in the fourth quarter. With that being said, how much time was left in the fourth quarter. And you also have to weigh the risks of giving the ball back to Andrew Luck and the game flow that we had seen that he had had with the offense in the second half. They were much more precise than they were in the first half. So you can't just take this in a vacuum. You have to look at the fact that there was risk in giving the Colts the ball back. So, in, in my opinion, this was a red flag play calling to me. This is one of those playing not to lose sort of things. And that's not a coach. That's not what Adam Gase, I think, presents himself as. I think he presents himself as this aggressive person. And we've seen him go against the grain and pass when everyone thinks that you should run and run when everyone thinks you should pass but maybe he's just kind of outsmarting himself and making himself look a bit foolish in the process because those last two, those last two drives I didn't agree with, but that third and 10 run play call, that's a red flag to me. If I'm a player for him, I'm seriously questioning his ability to win NFL football games. He showed no trust, as I said earlier, in his offense in Ryan Tannehill, and it was an indictment on what he thought of the Dolphins offense, the one that he created. And again, I think it changed a lot of people's opinions on him and based on that game. I have always given people the benefit of the doubt all throughout my life and even still do to this day. And you have to show me, and it's a flaw of mine, but you have to show me that you can't handle it for me not to trust you. And I felt that in that game, Adam Gase showed me that he could not handle it and did not have a feel for the game. It's It sucks to feel that way because, you know, you have this great head coach who everyone loved when he was hired and who everyone covered around the NFL when he was hired. And now we're sitting here talking about whether or not the Dolphins should fire him. And so we, we talked about earlier whether or not we think the Dolphins will fire him. I'm going to ask you guys now whether the Dolphins should fire him. And we talked about this last week. And I said, no, you need to keep him. Sutton and Houts, you were more leaning towards you need to get rid of him. Has your opinion changed? Mine has. I think you need to move on. Son and Houts, it sounds like your opinion has not changed from last week. My opinion has not changed. And when you look 
at an offensive-minded coach in his third year calling his own plays. I'm sorry, he's doubled down on the fact that he calls his own plays and that he got hired to work with Ryan Tannehill. Neither one of those seem to be working, in my opinion. You're looking at a bottom quartile offense, and it's not a fun product to watch. And I just think there has to be repercussions for doubling down on those things and not having really any offensive identity, in my opinion. What are we good at on offense? Are we good at passing? Are we good at running? Are we good at blocking? Are we good? I guess we're good at the trick plays. You know, we got that going for us. We got the bubble screens. We like to call those. But that's not something to hang your hat on. So without an offensive identity after three years, we should know it by now, fellows. We should feel it by now that this offense is trending in the right direction. And I don't feel that at all. Yeah, and I was kind of the guy in the middle last week. I saw both your points and was a little bit torn. But, I mean, after what we saw from Adam Gase, I mean, we touched on it throughout this podcast. That last – some of the play calling throughout the game, but those last two drives, I mean, that that's hard to ever overlook. And, I mean, you look at what he's done. He's 21-22 and 22 now with the Dolphins, including that playoff loss. I, I, like Sutton said, do you really just look at this team and think that they're that much better than they were with, you know, Joe Philbin? I don't see it, and you bring a guy in that's supposed to be an offensive guru, a guy who's a quarterback whisperer, some might say. I mean, he chose this job, and he used Tannehill as part of that reasoning, but the complete negligence of the quarterback position, I mean, we saw Jay Cutler last year, whether you Brock Osweiler came in and played well this year. I mean, we talk about it all the time, but at some point you had to go out there and find a guy that you could groom to take over behind Ryan Tannehill. I'm sure that's not all on Adam Gase, but – I just don't see enough good that has come from bringing Adam Gase to Miami. Sure, 21-22, and 22, given all the circumstances, the banged-up offensive line this season. Ryan Tannehill's been in and out of the lineup. I mean, the guy's got plenty of excuses, but good coaches don't need excuses, and I don't see a better team now than when J- Joe Philbin was here. So, uh, again, I don't think that Stephen Ross is going to make that decision, but I do think – it's going to happen sooner or later. We're just prolonging the inevitable. Adam Gase is not going to be the long-term head coach of the Miami Dolphins. And, I mean, we're sitting here saying this. I don't think any of us would be upset if he proved us wrong, if he went out there and, and did some of the things that he shows at times. Because you look at the Oakland game, you look at some of his early games this season, the offense looked awesome. I mean, sure, the stats are, you know, blown up by some of those. I mean, Tannehill, he had passing touchdowns that were just basically little tosses to Jakeem Grant and Albert Wilson. I mean, you just see these little things that, you know, skyrocket some of those statistics, but the offense looked awesome. And at times, Adam Gase has some damn good play calls. At times, this offense looks nearly unstoppable, but more times than not, it doesn't. And they look flat. His game planning before the game, I mean, those scripted plays, it's, it's just something that's never changing. And at 21 and 22, I mean, these last few games, we said it Last week about Ryan Tannehill, I was going to say a lot about his career. I, I think no matter how well he played against Indy, I think he's still what he is. And, you know, they're going to find a long-term answer at quarterback eventually. Sure, that's easier said than done. But 21-22, and 22, Adam Gase has five games to sit here and prove that he deserves another chance. But I think at the end of the day, he's he is what he is. And no matter how bad we want him to succeed, I just don't think he's going to be here long-term. Sometimes it's best to cut the bait and – do it a year early instead of a year late, and we all know how late the Dolphins have been on everything. They never could figure out how to be a year early ahead like the Patriots do. They've always a year late with contract negotiations, with, with everything. And you're probably going to see that again with Xavier Howard coming up uh, a year late, probably, unless they're working on an extension now that we don't know about. It's sad sometimes to sit here and think that we love a franchise that really has no direction. But we're going to play uh, armchair owner right now, and we're just going to talk about, to wrap up the show here, what we would do if we were Steven Ross. And here's what I would do. I would clean house on Black Monday, which is the day after the regular season is over. And I'm not going to make any firings midseason here. The Dolphins still technically have a shot at the playoffs if they win out. I don't think they will. I think that's a very tall order to ask of this team right now with all the injuries and everything else. But you let them finish the season because really this is not going to do you any good firing someone midway through the year or or this late in the game, I should say. But you start compiling that list. And right now I'm compiling the list of possible head coaches. But before I do that, I'm really making a list of strong potential candidates for general managers. 
And I have two that come to mind. The first one is Lewis Riddick. And I know that might get some, you know, groans from those who are listening. But Lewis Riddick has been a TV personality on ESPN for quite some time. He was a former safety who played in the NFL for seven years, 91 to 98, drafted by the 49ers in 1991, played college at Pittsburgh. He was a pro scout for the Washington Redskins after his career ended, and uh, he was there for four years before being promoted to director of pro personnel, hired by the Eagles as a pro scout in 2008, promoted to director of pro personnel on February 3rd, 2010, and then from there went to ESPN since 2013. Never been a general manager, but has been up the ladder in the scouting department. He wouldn't be my first choice. My first choice would be Elliot Wolf, who is now the assistant general manager of the Cleveland Browns under John Dorsey. He is the son of the great Ron Wolf, who was the general manager of the Packers on cover talent like Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers, just to name a few. Elliot joined the Packers as a pro personnel assistant in 2004, was promoted to assistant director of pro personnel in 2008, and assistant director of player personnel in 2011 before assuming then his uh, current position, moving up to uh, director of pro personnel, director of player personnel, director of football operations, and now as assistant general manager of the Cleveland Browns. Elliott was a candidate for the vacant Detroit Lions general manager position before they gave it to Bob Quinn, but the Packers denied the Lions' request to interview him. Now, then the 49ers also had an opening, and some linked Elliott to them, but didn't get the job. Some, many, actually thought that he would be the successor in Green Bay, but that job did not go to him. So he left for the Cleveland Browns, and now he's assistant general manager. I'd give Elliott Wolf full control over this organization. Get rid of Tannenbaum, get rid of Greer. And I know people will say Greer has done a good job, but Greer is a glorified scout. And yes, he has done a good job, but there's also a lot of flaws under his watch as well in terms of free agent acquisitions and so forth. So it's not all about the draft. I'd give Elliott full control over this team. I, I'd let him do whatever he needs to do to the front office. And then I'd let him have final say over the head coach. None of this reporting to Steve Ross. Elliot Wolf, you have final say over the head coach. And he would interview Adam Gase. He gets to decide whether to keep him or not. And if he wants to get rid of him, get rid of him before this 2019 season. Get rid of him in January when you come on the board. And that's what I'm doing for the Dolphins. Sutton, if you're the owner of the Dolphins, what are you doing? I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the show, I would do, you know, from the top down, have bring in your own president, who that is, you know, I, I don't really know of, you know, the carousel of potential candidates at this point. So I think that's something I'll probably evaluate at the end of the season, but I would bring in a guy who can then come in and kind of groom the culture and the vision from how they see it and be able to bring the the personnel in accordingly so then they're they're bringing in their own gm you know i thought about on one hand greer i know he's technically has the title of general manager but it's i don't mind him in a college you know director of college scouting sort of role i think that there is some value there but at the same time like I said earlier, it's probably best to just have a completely clean break and have these people bring in their own, you know, their own data teams, their own scouting teams, all that sort of thing. So I would I would bring, um, like I said, the, the team president, have them make all those decisions. What I would hope for in terms of who they go for in a coaching candidate, I'm still looking on the offensive side of the ball. I think that's where we're going to have to make our mark eventually. And I think there's more pieces for a, uh, a veteran defensive coordinator to come in to work with. So, you know, your Jack Del Rios or maybe even Marvis Lewis or sorry, Marvin Lewis would consider going back to being a defensive coordinator. That would be my vote to bring in a veteran defensive coordinator and kind of utilize some of the tools that we already have there. I think there's some more building blocks there in terms of a, a young nucleus there on defense and then be able to bring that head coach in who can come revitalize this offense and get us back to scoring some points and just having a more consistent product, moving the ball down the field and having an, an exciting offense to watch again, 
you know, we, we got glimpses, glimpses of it earlier in the year and just, it's really been kind of a, a struggle to watch since then. So we, we just need better offensive play. That's where the rules are naturally gravitating the game. We're going to need a magnetic guy to come in here. And I, I don't know how you sell season ticket holders to, to renew their season tickets in 2019 at this point in time. So you're, you'd have to bring in a guy who uh, you're pretty confident that's going to be the right guy because we've done this carousel so many different times. You'd like to think just through the law of averages that one of these rebuilds is going to be the right thing to do. Yeah, I know one way you can sell season tickets, and that's to go out there. And I I think this is kind of how this regime, how this head coach, Adam Gase, is going to kind of buy some more time. I think they're going to go to Adam Gase, and they're going to say, look, all right, they're going to go to Stephen Ross, and they're going to say, look, we, we can't win with Ryan Tannehill. We realize that uh, we need to find our guy, give us all the assets. I mean, we know Stephen Ross is more than willing to trade up if necessary. And I think that's why you keep hearing Mike Tannenbaum's name going around to see Justin Herbert and Dwayne Haskins and Will Greer and those college quarterbacks coming out because if you want to sell fans on you know, season tickets – give them hype, give them reason of hope. It's to go out there and draft a quarterback high and to prove that, you know, Ryan Tannehill, he's good. He can get things done every now and then, but he's not a franchise quarterback. He's not a guy that's going to take you to the promised land. And I think going out there and evaluating these quarterbacks and finding your guy and having enough kahunas to move up in that draft and select them, I think that's kind of what's going to save these guys' jobs. But to touch on some GM candidates, I mean, Eric DaCosta, he's a guy we consistently hear with Baltimore. I think he's eventually going to take over there. I think that's almost set in stone, but he's one of the first guys I would try to interview. A couple years back, we tried to pry uh, Nick Casario from the New England Patriots. I mean, he, he interviewed before Dennis Hickey. He's a guy who I'd be very interested in. Um, I mean, Elliot Wolf, like Kanata said, Joe Douglas, the vice president of player personnel in Philly, Alonzo Highsmith. He's there with Green Bay. I mean, there's some good GM candidates out there, and I think uh, none of us can really debate that they would be better than Mike Tannenbaum because we remember Mike Tannenbaum with the Jets. We know what he's done now with the Dolphins. No one likes Mike Tannenbaum. I don't think there's anything he could do to change the way we view him. I do like Chris Greer. I just don't think he would retain as a, uh, you know, as a scout like Sutton mentioned. So, I don't think it's going to happen, but I think the best way to go about this is to completely rebuild, bring in that GM like Kanata said, and then go out there and, and try to find your guy. I think I think the best way and I think the most logical way that Steven Ross could make a move this offseason is, again, if this team completely implodes and a guy like John Harbaugh, I, I, I want to say Jim Harbaugh because we all know when he hopped in his plane and flew west to try to pry him, which we thought was to Miami, but it turned out it was more to Michigan, but... I mean, Jim Harbaugh, whatever he's done there in Michigan, yeah, he hasn't quite lived up to the hype, but that's a guy who I've wanted since I believe it was a 2010 season. And I think if Jim or John were more than willing to come to Miami, I think uh, Stephen Ross would be pretty pretty tempted by that. A uh, big college name, a guy that we all know from the Baker Mayfield days, Lincoln Riley. I mean, he's kind of starting to get hype around the league as the Sean McVay of college football. I doubt he would leave the college ranks, but he's a guy who – I believe every NFL team is going to have their eye on. I don't think he's going to be another Chip Kelly. I think he's the real deal, and at some point he's going to be an NFL coach. But, again, I don't think it's going to happen I, unless there's a huge, huge uh, you know, fall towards the end of this year. I mean, if they lose for the next five games, sure. Well, why shouldn't Stephen Ross make a move? Because at that point, Adam Gase's career is going to be, what, 25 and 27? I mean, it, it's – it's not looking good. Uh, I think, again, it's not going to happen. But for me, I think you'd go out there, you'd fire everyone, completely rebuild, despite what these guys have done. And you find your GM, you find the guy that you believe in who can go out there and pick out the right guy, and you let him you just sit back and relax. Because at times, Stephen Ross is a little bit too hands-on, and that could be the downfall of this Dolphin franchise. I just hope whatever the outcome is, we see better days sooner than later. If you're one of those people who believe the Dolphins still have a great shot to make the playoffs and you're still with us on this podcast, I thank you for staying with us. Uh, the Dolphins still have a chance. I mean, at the end of the day, right, they still have a chance. Whether I think they don't have a chance, whether Houts thinks they don't have a chance, whether Sutton thinks they don't have a chance, whether the vast majority of Dolphins fans and the rest of the NFL and all odd scenarios say they don't really have a chance, the fact is they do. And if they do win out, they 
have a chance to make the playoffs. Yes, that is absolutely correct. So for all you saying now that, oh, I don't know why they're talking about the future. I don't know why they're talking about this and that. The Dolphins still have time to move around. We get it. We understand and we respect your opinion on that. We're just trying to be realist with everything the Dolphins have presented to us this year in the past two years under Adam Gase and just kind of thinking ahead here as to what will likely happen towards the end of this season. Unfortunately, we're not the owners, though, and unfortunately, we don't have enough money to buy the team, even if we wanted to be the owners. And unfortunately, even if we won the lottery, still probably want to have enough money to buy the team, and neither we probably wouldn't get approved by the NFL either. So we sit here as fans, and we sit here as people who cover the team, and we sit here as people who look at different things and try to figure things out. But at the end of the day, we don't have much say, if any at all. Probably say we'd have probably like a 1% chance say. People who have season tickets have a bigger say. So we'll see how the Dolphins finish this season. All three of us are not confident they'll finish it strong. Maybe they'll surprise us. Maybe things will start to click together. Maybe they'll go on a six-game win streak. It's not impossible. It's just going to be very hard. Any last thoughts, Sun and Outs? I know we covered a bunch on this show. We'll have another show later this week previewing the Buffalo Bills game. But anything else that we may have missed? Sutton. Just remember, you know, towards the end of the season and it doesn't matter who is the coach or the front office when it turns into 2019 season, no matter who it is, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to look at this roster and they're going to determine who we have. So for me, these last five games, it's going to be really important to see some of our young players, whether or not some of these players, you know, the Bobby McCain's, the Devon Godshaws, those types of players, are they, part of the young nucleus are they the types of players that we can build around or are they going to be you know depth players are even worse you know as time goes on so i think getting these young players on tape and seeing what we have i think that's going to be a really key thing for me going forward to see who we have on our roster and really have as little question marks about who we have as we possibly can yeah, just one last thing. I mean, we sit here and we talk about how the GMs that we've had over the last several years have inherited head coaches and vice versa. But isn't that the same thing that these head coaches have done with a guy like Ryan Tannehill? I mean, Adam Gase, he inherited Ryan Tannehill, whether he thought he was the, the right guy or not. I mean, uh, again, I think a complete rebuild is the right way to go. But I do think if they go out there and they evaluate these quarterbacks and they find a guy who, you know, they can sell to Stephen Ross and say, you know, this is the guy, this is the piece that we are missing this is what we need to do to succeed and take this team to the next level. I think that's what's going to end up saving this regime and at least giving them another year in 2019. We'll see what happens starting on Sunday versus the Buffalo Bills. Will the Dolphins win and keep their playoff hopes, although slim, alive? Will a loss basically end their season for all intents and purposes? We'll be back later this week with a preview episode of the Buffalo Bills and then again next week after the Buffalo Bills game. For Aaron Sutton and Joshua Houts, I am Matt Kanata. Thank you for listening to Finsider Radio. We will talk to you next time. That was Finsider Radio, part of the Finsider.com and the SB Nation Network. Miami has the Dolphins, the greatest football team. We take the ball from goal to goal like no one's ever seen. We're in the air, we're on the ground, we're always in control. And when you say Miami, you're talking Super Bowl because we're the Miami Dolphins. Cause we're the Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins number one. Yes, we're the Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins, Miami Dolphins number one. Everybody, Miami Dolphins, Miami.
hello. You are listening to Simone de Rochefort, one of the hosts of The Polygon Show. It's a show all about the video games that you'll never have time to play. Brought to you by four friends who are just as passionate about food, soft drinks, and TV shows as we are about video games. Every Friday, we bring you a new hour of personal stories. Like how we found the best way to play Yakuza 0. Or even what happens when you play so much Zelda that you hurt your hands and can't play games anymore. Above all, we just have a really good time talking about the games that we love. Check out the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. You can also find us at Polygon Show on Twitter and send a tweet to say hi. Thanks for listening. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it then in that moment. You don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done, and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of like afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts. Hello, I'm Neelai Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts.